Hello and welcome to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I'm your host, Al, and with me, my good friend, Dan, from the Radio Free Borderlands Podcast. How are you, Dan? I'm good. Good evening, everyone. So, I think you've seen Star Wars Episode Seven, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, but so before we begin going with the main topic, what were your, your thoughts on uh, Episode Seven? Well... My favorite part was when Dr. Brown and Captain Kirk fought the Daleks using the power of of Superman. Are, are you afraid of giving away spoilers? No, that was I, I did that one on purpose. There was also that scene where, um, I don't know if you remember this one, right? There, there was that scene where uh, uh, Duncan McCloud... And Jane Silent Bob brought back in time Super Tramp to do the concert in front of the mall. Do you remember oh, that scene? Oh, yeah. It was right in the must, middle. Oh, yeah. And then there was that other scene where, like, uh, Let Me Kill Mr., you know, appeared and, he, and he, t- he totally kicked everyone's butt. And then he played a solo on his bass and then drove off on his motorcycle. Yeah, that was right after Fozzie jumped that shark. <laughs> so, over, how, what did you think of it? I mean, uh, I know that I've read generally the movie's gotten pretty positive receptions i enjoyed it my main gripe with the movie and i don't know if you feel the same or not but is it just me or did they seem to rely a little bit too much on a lot of the same plot points from episode four i didn't think it was that bad i don't know i guess i'm that's a topic maybe we'll explore on another episode sometime i i like this one about as much as the originals. Um, I, I think what happened is is everybody. Some of the criticism is coming from the fact that there there were so many uh, preconceived expectations. Yeah. That nothing can live up to that. Yeah, and to some extent, I wonder if it's almost. See, this is just one of my theories. One of the, I said, one of the, my problems I had with the movie, I don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it. One of my problems with the movie was just that, as I said, they relied on a lot of the same plot points from the first episode, like, or episode four, technically, you know, like, okay, at the start of the movie, we've got a member of a rebel resistance that gives an important piece of information to a little droid who goes out in the desert is captured, and then rescued by someone who later turns out to be a powerful force wielder. Gee, where have we seen that before? And then I mentioned this when my wife and I did our episode. It's like, okay, there's a huge planet-destroying super weapon. Guess what happens to it by the end of the movie? So I know I've heard some people criticize it as essentially being just an attempt at doing a remake of episode four. I don't think I'd go quite that far. I almost wonder if they were afraid of doing anything new or original, so that's why they decided to rely on a lot on these, you know, these tried and true safe plot devices because they're afraid that people are going to think of it as just well, like react the same way people did with the the prequel trilogies. But then again, I mean, I know we've talked about geeks before. Sometimes you just some people you just can't satisfy. Them. No, that, and that's my my big thing. Well, now here's the here's the difference though, between this one and the prequels. The prequels had really terrible acting. 
Um, like, like there, the story wasn't that bad, but Hayden Christensen was terrible. Yeah, he, in 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 the words of of Charles Barkley, he's terrible, just just terrible. Yeah, I do have to say about episode seven. I think this is probably the best performance of Han Solo by Harrison Ford uh, in the stuff I've seen. I mean, I haven't seen the Star Wars Christmas special, but I think he really did a good job for this performance. Well, let's get on to today's topic. We're going to be talking about a different type of war, the console war. Now, for this episode, where this is actually going to be a multi-part episode because uh, just there's a lot of stuff we'd like to talk about. So... Let's jump right in with what a lot of people think is the would consider the first generation console wars, which mm-hmm. went from about the early seventies. I again, I know we both did a little bit of research. seventy-two to about seventy-six. Yes, and some of the stuff we had here were like the Magnavox Odyssey, the Telstar, and there oh a truckload of Pong consoles. Let's not lie. Most of those are Pong. <laughs> yeah. And, um, if any of you ever watched the Angry Video Game Nerd, he did an episode about Pong consoles, and he was saying that it's remarkable that, you know, we're using plural here and that there were just so many of them. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of them did, it's like, essentially it was the same game with minor variations. Like, there was one where on one side of the screen it had, you know, just a regular size little... uh you know, paddle. And on the other side, the paddle covered the entire side of the screen, except for one small area. He's like, what's this? A-hole pong? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they would do things like, okay, well, let's slow down the uh, speed of the ball. Now it's volleyball. Let's make it a little faster. Now it's ice hockey. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is, is that um, the, the Magnavox Odyssey, it was the first. It was the first system. But Pong was what... The Atari Pong was uh, probably the one that really, really blew this whole thing out of the water. Now, I don't know if you've ever played on the home Pong system. I have. We used to have it when I was a kid. I never did. It was okay. I mean, for, you know, as Pong goes, it was it was okay. Um, it was not, though, what I think a lot of new gamers would expect. Even... Even if you've seen pictures of, of you know, screenshots of Pong, you know, you're not really getting the whole the whole story here. I mean, the Pong console had, the bottom of it was, was a house for eight D-cell batteries. Oh, yeah. And the audio did not come out of the television. It came out of the list. There's a little speaker that was between the two knobs. Yeah, for all they could get the little bleeps and bloops. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. You know, and I, I almost think that even though the Atari name was known for the arcade game Pong, I think one of the things that really made this a a, a console war was the it was Atari, which was known for Pong versus Magnavox, which at the time, you know, they made the Odyssey. I think they were they they were a trusted electronics company. Yeah, and I mean, because that, that's right, Atari at this time was pretty much just an upstart, mm-hmm. and. Now, I'm not sure, there's not really much else I think we can say about this generation, pretty much because it was before our times. I mean, we were born in the the later part of the, the first console wars, so when these games were out, we were pretty much in diapers. So, 
Let's move on to the second generation. Which second, is, that one's fun. Yep, because the, the second generation, yes, this is from 76 until about 83. 83, 84, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's a, a specific event that happened in 1983 that uh, marks the end of the second generation and some veteran gamers out there, people who are been playing video games for a long time. You probably know what we mean when we say 1983 in that fateful year, but we'll get to that. Yeah, all those, all those Gen Xers are like, oh yeah. Now the the, the big systems that in in the second uh, second generation, we all know the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yep, and then originally referred to as the VCS, with its with its uh, totally awesome. Um, Wood paneling, yeah, fake wood panel. <laughs> but then there was also another big one was the Intellivision. Yep, I remember that Coleco, and yeah, and the ColecoVision. Uh, the Fairchild uh, was another one. The Fairchild and, Channel F. Um, Vectrix, I played that one. It was a fun one. Yeah, the, the Vectrix. Um, yeah, and the Vectrix was one that I remember was kind of unique because mm-hmm. it was. I guess you could say it was kind of an early attempt at portable gaming because the console actually had a screen in it. But the screen was portrait orientation, so that way it was trying to simulate, uh, you know, the arcade screens of the day. So one of the things that I think really helped this generation is, and that we're, this is a trend that we see a lot, is that a lot of times in each generation there's going to be a push to make use of new technology. And one of the biggest innovations that came during the second generation was swappable cartridges. Yeah. Which was a huge step forward, I think, because the problem with a lot of those old, uh, like, Pong units and, like, the Magnavox and stuff, since they only had a few games, once you got tired of those games, the system didn't have anything really to offer you anymore. A lot of people don't realize that that was a big deal. Oh, yeah. That you could play different types of games. It wasn't just tennis-style tennis style games anymore. Yep, and that made it possible to create you know, a wider range of games to appeal to people who maybe needed something more than just hitting a ball back and forth between two lines. You know, of course, you had Combat, which had, for the Atari 2600, which had tanks and planes. And jets. And jets, yep. And, and then the little invisible tanks that you'd shoot and they'd bounce, or it'd bounce around like a Super Bowl and go bing, bing, bing. And then, of course, we also got to see some other genres start mm-hmm. to take hold here. I mean, the sports games actually started to look more like real sports. Well, as real, <laughs> <Sorta>. <laughs> as, as, real as they could get back then. Um, but like baseball, you know, you could tell, okay, it was a baseball game. It's not just, you know, like I said, lines and dots moving around. Mm-hmm. And we this, could also see other things appear like, you know, platforming games or you know, action games. This, this, was, this was the early introduction to... Um, the the side scroller. Yep, because we had games like Pitfall, Pitfall is the one that I that comes to mind for me right away. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think we remember a bit more about this era because this was a time when you know we were old enough to actually start getting into games and being mm-hmm. able to appreciate them a little more. Now I don't know about you, but I I never actually owned an Atari or Coleco or Intellivision. We had family friends that mm-hmm. had them, so usually the only time I got to play these games is when I went over to a friend's house. Uh, like, for example, I had a friend named Joe who lived in my neighborhood, and he had an Atari. 
So occasionally we'd go when we'd play, you know, the games like the classics, like, you know, combat and adventure. And um, another one that was actually kind of ahead of its time was Indiana Jones, or not Indiana Jones, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Well, with Indiana Jones, but of course the title is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You ever play that one? Did not. Yeah, the thing that was so ahead of its time is it had an inventory management system. Now, the problem is you needed two controllers in order to play the game because it's like the second player controller is what you would use to manage your inventory. It was one of those games where there was a lot of, really you had to do a lot of experimentation because they really couldn't tell you much in game. Uh, Let me give you an example. There's this one part where you have to throw a grenade into a wall, but there's no distinguishing markings. So the only way you would know that is if you saw someone else do it or if you just experimented, hey, I think I'll throw a grenade against this wall and blow open a a passage. So, I mean, I think it was just one of those games where maybe if it came out during the third generation, it could have made a better game than what, you know, what they were able to do with the with the Atari. Yeah, there was limited memory in those in those Atari cartridges. I think the big the big thing for especially the Atari, but also the ColecoVision at this time was trying to get home ports of popular arcade games. Yep, which didn't always translate as planned. Pac Man. Um, yeah, because I know they try. Yes, <laughs> Pac Man. Amp, amp, amp. The thing is, is Pac- when Pac-Man got onto the 5200 for the Atari, which was a little later in the second generation, it, it, it was a little closer to what we thought of as Pac-Man for the Atari, but they rushed out Pac-Man so quick for the 2600 that it was it was barely the same game. Yeah, and part of it, one of the problems with it is, in, in case you've never played the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man... The background was blue, which, of course, in the arcade game, it's black. And the reason I heard is that Atari's policy was that you can only use a back black background for spaceship games. So they didn't want to use that for Pac-Man, so instead they made it blue. Uh, another huge problem with it is because of the orientation of a TV screen versus a, a video game console screen like you'd see in the arcade they had to flip it on its side. So uh, you were going in a maze that was long instead of tall. And it was completely different. Yep. And the other really big problem with it is it was notorious for its flickering. And it had something to do with the number of sprites that the system could have active at once. Mm -hmm. And that was its... So what they had to do is they had to have the ghosts flicker in order to, you know, get more than a couple ghosts on the screen. And But yeah, you're right. I believe that one was Rush to Development. And well, should we take, should we shoot the elephant in the room right away or should we talk about some of the other systems first? Uh, let's do a little bit of the other systems because I didn't have an Atari until later on. But, you know, I had kids in the neighborhood who had all three systems. And I mean, it was an argument. It was, uh, you know, uh, this this time of the of, of of the decade, a lot of people think, oh, this was this was the old VHS versus Betamax. Well, it was a lot. I mean, it wasn't as as blown up. It was 
well, primarily the kids arguing arguing it, but this was our our kind of version of that. I know I had my friend Joe who had an, uh, had an Atari, mm-hmm. and I think because like I said I know we also had another family friend. I think I can't remember if they had a Coleco or an Intellivision, but uh, yeah, because I said they looked the, a lot alike. Yeah, and I, I know what some of the games I remember playing, of course, were like you know Pitfall, Venture, Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. Uh, there's one that I remember that was just terrible. And have you ever played uh, Superman for the Atari? A long time ago. I think I played it once. Yeah, it was terrible because basically you just flew around and I guess he had to like pick up pieces of a bridge and reassemble it. And occasionally mm-hmm. there would be a little thing, a kryptonite that would float by. And it's like when you saw that, you reverted to Clark Kent. So you had to... Um, you know, go to a telephone booth in order to get back to Superman. And I think you had to rescue Lois Lane and you had to take bad guys. So to put to jail. So it, it just came out kind of a mess. Well, Empire Strikes Back was similar. It was kind of boring. It was nothing more than just flying around in a rogue speeder, uh, uh, taking out AT-ATs. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is like the first 20 minutes of the film. (laughs) Yeah. And I know it just, kept going and going and I this is a a common thing you see with a lot of Mm -hmm. video games now at this time most of these games didn't have a definitive ending usually it was just Mm -hmm. you kept going until you died to see how high of a score you could get there were a couple that did I think Adventure might have been the first with an actual end Yep, sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark that one also Mm -hmm. had a definite end I kept hearing rumors that supposedly there was an end to Pitfall. I heard those rumors too, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's a sensor's like that 20-minute time limit. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the only point to to, 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 uh, to Pitfall is just to see how high of a score you can get in 20 minutes. Jungle Hunt sort of had an ending. Yeah, because that it was... It kind of did the same thing that Zelda did later on. Which was, you know, you 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 do the uh, the vines, then you'd swim with the crocodiles, then you jump over the stones, and then after you jumped over the, the the witch doctors, then you finally, you know, rescued the girl. Oh yeah, I remember that one because I remember playing that one mostly on the arcade. But yeah, that again kind of had an technically, I guess you could say it had an ending. So it was more a little more like Super Mario Brothers, where yeah, after you beat it, you just go through it again. Except this time, everything's a bit faster. Oh yeah. So that one I remember more from the arcade than uh, the the home system. I mean, I think some of the games from this uh, this time period that were from the arcade did translate okay, at least as well as they sure. could do it for the you know with the hardware like uh, Asteroids did. Yeah, Asteroids, uh, Donkey Kong, Space Invaders. Yeah. So yeah, I said those usually those simple games did translate well enough where you could give them a pass. But Pac-Man, yeah, that was a disaster. What do you think was the downfall? Because uh, I'm going to tell you right now, Atari was not a well-run uh, company, and I think that's what did them down. This is why when people think of the Atari, they stick to the second generation, and that's about it, even though they had stuff afterwards. Yeah. But I think in, in the early 80s, they decided that they were going to compete against themselves by releasing, while the 2600 was still in production, the Atari 5200. Oh, yeah. Uh, Not compatible, at least not right out of the box, with the 2600. Mostly games that were already available on the 2600. 
and extremely expensive. Yeah, because I believe what Atari did mm-hmm. is they lowered the cost of the console itself because they figured they make more money on software. Well, it was still pretty pricey, though. That's true, because there's... When the Atari 2600 came out in in the 70s, it was $200, which is pushing 800 in today's prices. Oh, yeah, because there's a... I think it was IGN that did it, but there's some (laughs) gaming website, they made a chart showing the different video game units that, you know, how much they cost when they came out and how much Mm -hmm. they would be in today's dollars. And yes, it's amazing. I mean, some of those earlier systems would be like seven, eight hundred dollars in today's money. Sure, but um, I think. Well, I think another thing that really helped do Atari in, and uh, and this again, this was just a bad business decision on their part. They decided to make their software open source. So it's like, okay, if you want to make a video game for the Atari, have at it. So there, a lot of times there were games that Atari didn't know were released until they were actually released. Oh, yeah. So part of the problem is you had a lot of low-quality games uh, from smaller companies that maybe didn't put a lot of money or time into developing their games because they knew that they could make a quick buck off of this. And in some cases, you also had companies that were... Um, they were already heavily invested in the hardware market, but then at the same time, they would be releasing software elsewhere. Mattel was, is a good example of this. Even with the Intellivision out, they still made Atari cartridges. Sure. Another thing that I think really hurt the gaming industry at this time is that, I mean, you notice that there were, we mentioned some of the big ones, Atari, Coleco, Intellivision, the Fairchild, the Vetrix, and there were also a lot of other smaller companies. So part of the problem was there was tons of video game manufacturers out there. And since the video game industry didn't really develop to the point it is today, mm-hmm. you didn't really have like, well, there weren't websites you could go to to look up a game to see if it's any good. And there weren't, I don't think there were a lot of magazines or newsletters at this time that were doing reviews on games. No, so, I don't believe so either. Yeah, so unfortunately the only way that you could tell if a game was any good or not, because of course the cover art lied to you, you know, and well, part of that has to do with, of course, just the graphical limitations, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the only way you could really tell if a game was any good is you, you had to either buy it and play it, or if you had a friend who had it, go to his house and play it and see if it's something that you like. And now let's get to the elephant in the room. The big crash of 83. A lot of people blame this on E.T. I think that's a little unfair. Yeah, and I Um, I think it was a number. I agree with you. I think there were a lot of things that were responsible for it. Again, we mentioned the ton of, you know, crappy games out there and just too many systems. And you want to talk about E.T.? Well... The gist of it was is that um, Spielberg went to Atari, said, "Hey, we want to we want to use uh, a video game as a cross promotional tool for the film," but they only gave the the developers uh, a very short amount of time. I think it was in a matter of weeks. So naturally, when the game was released, it was it was considered quite the disappointment, even though it sold well. Yeah, um, and the, everybody knows the the now somewhat confirmed rumors of 
Atari dumping um, truckloads of E.T. cartridges into a landfill. It turns out that there was more than just E.T. in that landfill. I mean, E.T., you're right. It's one of those... It's like Pac-Man. It was one of those games that was rushed where they were just like, okay, uh, Mr. Programmer, here's the game that we want you to make. It has to be done in six weeks. Go for it. I, I think the the worst part was is you had all sorts of electronic and game and toy companies hop in here. Uh, Emerson, Coleco, Milton Bradley. Uh, uh, I know there are, there are a few more. Uh, Magnavox was still in it. Uh, um, Fairchild, Mattel. And, and what happened was, is, um, you know, everybody released their two to $300 console. There were eight or nine different options for, for people to choose from, including two alone from Atari. And what ended up happening was, Everybody lost their shirt because they oversaturated the market. Yep. And that, that's definitely what caught, I think, is one of the things that was responsible for the crash. But fortunately, the video game industry did not die out mm-hmm. as we moved to the third generation. And again, this is one where we're going to know a bit more about because we were really into the games at this time. Cool. And, you know, I, there were a lot of good games that were released around this time. And one thing that we will notice in this generation is there's fewer major players. Mm-hmm. The, it went down to three. Yep, the main ones. Atari was still in there. I Barely. think he had the 7800 at this time. Yes. And then there was Nintendo the, and yeah. Sega! Nintendo came first, and they snuck into the market by avoiding the term video game as much as possible. Yep, because they the reason it's abbreviated to NES is because They didn't say it was a video game system. They said it was an entertainment system. Mm -hmm. Because not only did they have the little box with the controllers, they also had the light gun, which I don't think Nintendo was the first company to do a light gun. They were around before. Mm -hmm. But it also had the robot, which unfortunately there were only two games released for it. Uh, Gyromite, and there's one other that I can't remember right now. Oh, I don't remember either. But... Yeah, that was, I think, one of their novelties is that, yeah, you had this, you know, you had this robot, and I think a lot of people were kind of excited. It's like, okay, well, we know what you do with a controller. We know what you do with a light gun. What do you do with a robot? Uh, Not much, apparently, since, as I said, they can only come up with two games for it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because some of you might remember from the old NES days, they had the different series and, like, the old classic black boxes you would have a little logo that would say like light gun series or sports series or action or adventure series. And of course they had the robot series, which was only two games. Two games. Yep. Now Sega came in about, I want to say it was about a year later in the States. Oh no, it was actually pretty close now that I'm looking at it. And the master system it wasn't as popular as, as the NES, and that's partially due to Mario, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, because if you look at a lot of the early games, Sega tended to have more arcade ports. And the reason for that is because Nintendo did something which turned out to be illegal. They Now, one thing Nintendo did, and I don't know if they were the first company to do this, but they had games that had the official Nintendo seal of approval which meant that Nintendo took a look at these games, 
and they approved the content on them and the so you you knew that you probably weren't going to get uh, an extremely terrible unplayable game like some of the ones that were released around the era of the the second generation now of course there were still game manufacturers that made unlicensed games but there weren't as many of them but what nintendo did which turned out to be illegal is whenever a third party developer created a game for the NES mm-hmm. by their contract they couldn't release that same game for another system so like for example Konami you know releasing an awesome game like Castlevania you know they they couldn't release that game for the the Sega Master System or the Atari and you know as I said of course that eventually turned out being to be illegal but I mm-hmm. think it did give it did help give Nintendo a you know, a heads up on the market. Now, the thing is, everybody I knew who had a Master System at the time loved it. There were some good games for it. I haven't played a lot of Master System games. Alex Kidd was kind of the... um, Their version of Mario? Their official uh, mascot at the time. This was pre-Sonic. But they have some games now that, that that most or they had some games then that a lot of people nowadays would be like, oh yeah, that was that's that was a big classic. I mean, they had Afterburner, they had Shinobi. Holy cow, was Shinobi awesome! They had Fantasy Star. They had oh, Sort of Vermilion is I think another one of the was, more prominent ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, you know, Rostin was another good one. And Reggie Jackson Baseball was a very good baseball game. Yeah, and as one of the reasons that Sega had so many arcade ports is because, well, at the time, Sega made a lot of, you know, classic arcade games. Mm-hmm. And what they did is since they couldn't, well, since like Konami or Capcom couldn't bring like Castlevania or Mega Man or any games like that over to the Master System, what they would do is they would just port over the games that they already had. And from what I understand, I believe that technically the wasn't it the Master System technically a superior system to the NES? It had better hardware. There was one game I remember playing on both the, the NES and the Master System, and there wasn't too much of a difference. Both both systems had Spy versus Spy. Okay, that I didn't know because I know they had Spy versus Spy for the NES. That was a fun game. <laughs> yeah, it, it took a little while to get used to, but it was one of those fun games to troll. It was a mad magazine game, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those fun games to just mm-hmm. play just to annoy your friends. So, I mean, I was more into Nintendo at this time. I guess mm-hmm. I didn't, I only knew like one other person that had a Master System. And when I went to his house, we usually didn't play it very often. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the Atari 7800, I don't think I ever played it. So most of my mm-hmm. experience around this time was with the good old NES. So what were some of your favorite games for the NES? Oh, I think you can run the standards. Uh, the Mario series. Metroid. The first Zelda game. Metroid. Um, Dragon Warrior. Final Fantasy. Um, I, I liked the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but boy, was that sucker tough. Uh, the arcade game was a blast. Yeah, and- I know my one of my previous guests, Josh Hadley, we did an entire episode where we talked about when arcade games come home. And, mm-hmm. you know, because 
one of the things you always got to consider when you take a game from an arcade and put it on a home console, mm-hmm. it's not unusual for the game to go on, uh, undergo a total revision. And part of that is you got to consider the, you know, where, what the purpose of a home game is and what the purpose of an arcade game is. Of course, an arcade game is meant to devour as many quarters as possible. Mm-hmm. Where I think when you design a game for a home system, you want to get a little bit more longevity out of it. And one example of a game I can think that was radically different when it came to the NES, but actually was better for it, was Willow. Because uh, I don't know if you ever seen that Willow that movie. Yeah, but because the uh, have you ever played either of the Willow games for the arcade or the NES? No, no. Because no. the arcade game was a side-scrolling platformer where you switched between Willow and Mad Mardigan. And, of course, mm-hmm. Mad Mardigan had his sword attacks. Willow used magic. The NES game was overhead perspective, and it was it played more like a Legend of Zelda game. Um, and in this one, Willow uses, in addition to using magic items, he also has a sword and a shield. It, the plot only very loosely follows the movie, but that's where I think makes the game so great is the fact that it is so different from the movie. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, so is um, so is Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves, which was a pretty oh yeah. good game. Yeah, that um, was one of those games that was. I know there was a hidden password, but I can't remember how you were supposed mm-hmm. to access it. But that I agree, that was actually a really good game. Um, little too long to play through in one mm-hmm. sitting, I think. Yeah, but, yeah, still a fun game. Uh, Goonies Two was a fun oh, game. Yeah. Uh, Oh man, um, kind of like a Metroid feel to it. Yeah, and you, you know me, I'm I'm a Castlevania fanboy, and um, I, I liked mm-hmm. all three of the Castlevania games for the NES uh, Mega Man series. I wasn't a hardcore Mega Man fan, but I enjoyed the ones I played. They were okay. It was okay. Um, now going over to the Sega, the I, I really got to tell you, probably my favorite game was Hang On. It was a really just a fun racing game. Do you ever play f- the original Fantasy Star? I played a little bit of it once, but I never got too mm-hmm. far into it because I believe that was another difference between the NES and the Sega Master System. Is the Master System didn't have it as many notable role playing games on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Fantasy Star is the only real notable exception. There was also. Um... Golden Axe Warrior, that was yes. a good game. There was Golvelius, the Valley of Doom, which was a lot like Crystallis. There was another one that my cousins had that I really liked. But my my cousins had a tendency, they would buy the, the game. Then they would open the game. They would pull out the guts. They would put close the game back up, and then they'd take it back to Kmart saying that the game was bust. Oh. They'd get their money back, but they'd still have their game. <laughs> Which, besides the fact that that is just horribly wrong, it made it so that I never actually saw the name of the game. So I, I, I was looking for it, and I think I saw it at one point. I just don't remember offhand, yeah. but it was a really good role-playing game. Because yeah. um, the NES had, like, you know, Dragon Warrior 1, 2, and 3 at Final Fantasy. Um, trying to think of some of the other ones. I know they had a couple Wizardry games. They had... The two Ultima games. They had yep. Quest for the Avatar. And Ultima and- Exodus. Uh, they, Swords and Serpents. Swords and Serpents. Uh, <laughs> Shudder. Um, We've talked about Swords and Serpents in our old school video role-playing games. Yeah. The Pool of Radiance. Yep, Pool of Radiance. Um, Can't forget that one. 
technically, I mean, you could argue that River City Ransom was a bit like a role-playing game. Kind of. I mean, you did level up. A little up. bit. Yeah, you, you, you leveled up your stats. It was kind of a role-playing game. Yeah, a Crystallis, as I mentioned. Zelda kind of acts that way, too, in a way. At yeah. least it's kind of, it, it's in the same territory. Now, for you, is there any reason why you decided to give what go with an NES or no? Mario. Okay. Because <laughs> no, for me, what did it for me is when I was a kid, back when we were living in New Berlin, uh, mm-hmm. my cousin lived up in Appleton. And sometimes when we would come up here, I'd go hang out at his house and we'd play NES. And I think Legend of Zelda was a game that really made me want to get a Nintendo. And like I said, I didn't really know anyone else that had a Sega, so I didn't get a chance to get exposed to much mm-hmm. Sega Master System at this time in my life. But I have to say, definitely, Legend of Zelda is one of those games that really made me want to get an NES. Now, do you remember a lot of really hard shots being fired between them at the time? Not as much during this era. When we get, next episode, when we get into the fourth generation, yeah, that's where things get nasty. I, I think the, to me, if remembering the commercials going back, I think the biggest shots were actually fired by Atari because at the time when when they realized that the 7800 wasn't going anywhere, they also refurbished the 2600. They they shrunk down the box. They they gave it a nice 80s look with some chrome and <laughs> rainbows instead of the the 70 style wood grain. And um, they they put it back out on the market. And the big selling point was you could get this game or the system with all of these games for under 50 bucks. That was their big thing, under 50 bucks. Yeah, where I think like, well, this was back in like 85 or 86 dollars. I think yeah, 86, I, 87, somewhere in there. Yeah, my because I think when I got my Nintendo Entertainment System, I got the deluxe set that had the light gun, two controllers, Super Mario and Duck Hunt. That was a two fifty, right? I think I paid like two ten for mine. Yeah, yeah, and, and obviously some people bought. The cool thing is, is if you if you want to get an Atari right now, if you're thinking I, I'd really like to have one, um, if you can find one of those twenty six hundred juniors, those will last you longer than the ones that were branded as a VCS with the with the wood grain. It's just, yeah. just a little FYI. And I think they, I know they do also have retro flashback systems for Atari and Television mm-hmm. and ColecoVision. Mm-hmm. I think they still sell them at the they they sell them at the Toys R Us near my house. Uh that's where I got my Genesis retro system. Yeah, so they they are still out there. So yeah, if you can't find the old ones, the cuz I think the their new retro systems not only do they come prepackaged with a bunch of games, mm-hmm. they also can play your your original um you know your your original game cards if you still have them. Yeah. But I think we're going to call this an episode because we said talked quite a bit about the second and third because that's what we grew up with. And I know we're going to have a lot to say about the fourth generation of console wars. So, Dan, if people want to hear more of you, where can they find you? Well, they can they can search in iTunes or Google Radio Free Borderlands. They can also go to Radio Free Borderlands at or .libson.com. Yep, and then... Of course, you can find Point of Insanity Game Studio. You can find me on Facebook. And you can also find Radio Free Borderlands on Facebook. So feel free to stop by and like the pages. We do appreciate it. Uh, Of course, you can find my podcast on Podbean or iTunes. 
Also, don't forget to visit my YouTube channel where I have some gaming videos I've done. So I'd like to thank you for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.